What's Underneath is a CastBox original produced in partnership with Studio 71. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all of your favorite podcasts. You can listen to What's Underneath wherever you get your podcasts, but we hope you'll give CastBox a shot and see for yourself. Hello and welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire radical self-acceptance through empowering you to embrace what's unrepeatable in you. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind. And we are Style Like You. In our new podcast, we are going to expand the types of intimate, unfiltered conversations we've been having in our viral video series, The What's Underneath Project. Each week, we will interview diverse nonconformists about their relationship to style, self-image, and identity. Being radically honest without shame and holding that honesty with compassion is self-acceptance. So we're here right now with Lori Davis who we feel incredibly honored to interview today after interviewing her husband, Damien Eccles, last week. He, just very quickly, is someone that, if you all are not familiar and haven't listened, you should go back and listen to that. But he was on death row for 18-plus years for a crime that he didn't commit. And as we were sitting and interviewing him, we, the whole entire time, we're stopping ourselves from speaking to Lori at the same time because she is the other half of the story. She is also a he- very much a hero as well because she saw uh, the first documentary that was done on Damien, which was during the trial, and um, packed her bags, uh, essentially quit her job as an architect in New York City and moved to Arkansas, I believe, in, in the woods, more or less. And... Long story short, they fought to get him out. It took 10 years. They got married along the way, raised $5 million. She raised $5 million. She raised $5 million. So there was no way that we were leaving that interview and not interviewing Lori as well. And they sent each other over 3,000 love letters while Damien was in prison. Which ended up being, turning into a riveting book that we found. I've read the book and I couldn't put it down. I've read both books, Life After Death, and that one is called... Uh, Yours for Eternity. Yeah, so (laughs) thank you, Lori, for doing this. And we feel really, really, really fortunate that you said yes to us. And we can continue our investigation of beautiful humans. (laughs) Through you. Well, I am beyond honored to be here because I am so appreciative of the work that you do and the service that you are giving to people and their stories and so completely beyond honor thank you for having me um so how are you feeling right now I'm a little nervous yeah (laughs) yeah have you um like been interviewed or in the spotlight at all throughout any of this or I have uh, quite a bit, actually, but it wasn't something I was comfortable with. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to stay behind the scenes very much so. And um, But around 2007, when we had a breakthrough in uh, DNA testing and found a match to uh, a possible another possible suspect, it just became just increasingly um, important that someone speak for Damien and humanize him and so the lawyers and people around just kept trying to encourage me to speak out so I, I did but I'm never comfortable with it mm-hmm. even though I think it served its purpose can you well can you just back up a little bit and talk about how this all started I used to go to a film series at MoMA called new directors new films 
1996, when I was looking through the catalog, I saw the synopsis for Paradise Lost, and there was a photo of mugshots of Damien and Jesse Miss Kelly, and then a slight description of the what the movie was about. I mean, I've been obsessed with movies my whole life as a kid growing mm. up in West Virginia. I don't even, it's a long story, but somehow I got a subscription to The New Yorker, and I would sit on the front steps and just read about the movies and mer- and, and, and would memorize the movie theaters. And actually, it was the reason I moved to New York, so I could be closer to the movie theaters. Wow. Yeah. So it was almost like you were being brought closer to him. Yes, I really believe that. I think my love of movies, and I'm, you know, it was a very, I was, you know, it's almost like a, a curated, you know, what I would see. It was very particular about it. And I did not want to see Paradise Lost at all. Oh, you didn't? I did not. I had seen a previous uh, film that Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky, who are the directors and producers of Paradise Lost, this series, had made. And I just didn't really care for, it was a great film, and I think it's it's really, it's been really it's an important film. What was it? Uh, Brothers Keeper. Uh, it's tough. It's a tough film. I just... Is it a documentary? It is. And it's about a murder. And uh, even though it's uh, it, just my taste, I just... It, I didn't walk away from it wanting to see more of their films. And I'm sorry, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> if you listen to this, because I think your films are amazing and really are... are important. Important. Mm-hmm. Abs- well, yeah, I'm here today because of... <laughs> Well, they're saving lives. Yes. So that, but I didn't want to see Paradise Lost. And it was a rainy Tuesday and the film was shown at nine o'clock. I lived in Brooklyn at at the time at night. And who, we all, you know, anyone who lives in New York, you don't want to sit in a movie till 12 o'clock on a rainy Tuesday night and then take a cab home in the rain. So, I mean, everything was saying, no, don't go see it all day long. This little voice in my head, go see that movie, go see that movie, go see that movie. And I kept trying to ignore it. And then finally, towards the end of the day, I just realized, I've, for whatever reason, I have to see this movie. It was that strong, this voice in my head. Do you, had you always listened to your, the voice in your head so strongly? Uh, if it's that strong, if, uh, yeah. Uh, if, if it's discernible that it is actually really trying to tell me something, I'm getting better at it. I haven't always been that good at listening to it, but for whatever reason this day. And I you did. were just to paint a picture. You were at your job as an architect. Yes. So you were like, what? What was? What were you making? And I was like, pro- I was probably just working on, you know, a big. I do. I mean, in most days, I didn't do CAD, so I would just be at the drawing table, um, you know, drawing all day, completely in in my head, which I am most of the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Meaning not present with what you were doing in some other Com- world. It just as I draw, then I, I get so into it oh. as I think. A lot of people who you know draw, or you just get, you just disappear into it, and mm-hmm. that's what I loved about my work. So one of the things. So I went to the film. So you loved your work. I did love my work. Oh yeah, I love I loved it. Um, went to the film, completely blown away by it. Didn't quite know what to think of it. I just, I mean, I grew up in the South, so I understood the culture of the Bible Belt and fundamentalism, uh, Christian fundamentalism, I knew where that was coming from. All of the judgment, um, what he was up against. And so I... Did you live around it or was it actually really home? Oh, it was home. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church with uh, fundamentalists. I mean, my parents are fundamentalists. I grew up in that culture. 
And you always like felt different from it or? It always felt angry and judgmental to mm-hmm. me, even as a child. But I loved the angels and I loved the miracles and I loved the concept of prayer. Mm-hmm. I always did. And I would even try it out and it always worked, you know, when mm-hmm. I was a kid. So th- those, I ended up turning my back on all religion. I'm not going to say spirituality, but religion in my 20s. Um, but that was so prevalent in this film. You could just feel it. You know, that's what it was mm-hmm. all, not all about, but that was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. So, and Damien just appeared. I mean, he was a kid. It's not like I went into the movie and saw him and fell in love. You know, I mean, it was, he was a kid in that film. He was, you know, 18 years old, I think, when they were filming. They may be 19, but. And um, so when they released it, it was, how old was he then? And Probably like, 22. So he was still, it was like right at the beginning. So. Right at the beginning of his incarceration. Mm-hmm. Incarceration, yes. Um, so I was. And you were how old at the I time? I was 31. I'm mm-hmm. 10 years older than he is. So he, so I, um, I was just shook to my core by what I was seeing. And I've never come, I've never seen a film and felt like that I wanted to take some kind of action and I didn't know what quite what to do I was was very affected by it and um, how did that manifest like in the days to come like I woke up I mean I you know you're I was trying to distill all the different facts that you learn in the film because it doesn't give you I mean you do walk out of it with this feeling of a grave injustice has, has occurred but you can't quite figure it all out just because there's so many unanswered questions and this but I remember waking up the next morning with this my mind had had sorted some things out and I just sat up and I was just like oh he's innocent and what's going to happen to him he's on death row and so a couple like a week it took me about a week to figure out you can just write him a letter and ask if you can help help him and that's what I did what you, so your letter literally said, hi, I saw the film. What can I do to help? Basically. It was a very short letter. I didn't know quite what trying to him. I just told him I understood. Kind of, I didn't understand what he was going through, but I understood a little bit um, about his the, the place uh, where he grew up. And, um, yeah, I just asked him, what can I do to help? And I didn't know what to expect, but about a week later I got a letter back. <laughs> and he didn't ask for anything. You know, he didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for books. He didn't ask for anything. He just thanked me for writing and was so gracious. And really, it was a very intelligent, very humble letter. And so I wrote him back. And from the, actually, I sent him books. Um, the second you could, it was back then. You could still send books personally. Personally, so I know. I um, I firsthand know now how you can send books to someone in prison because I did it two weeks ago and it was his book. Ah. Oh. For Father's Day oh, or whenever great. Father's Day was a few weeks ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I and I now know how you, you have to do it. Yeah. You can't send it personally. Yeah. Yeah. But back then they hadn't started all those rules. So we were sending each other all kinds of stuff. So he uh, he did, did his um, first letter back to you like prompt a response or you just wanted to respond because you were just like taken by the situation it, it prompted a response oh, okay. um because I think I, I don't exactly remember what what it said I just remember feeling 
wanting to write back to him right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and find and send a book to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which mm-hmm. later on he told me he didn't like any of my books. <laughs> what did you send? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Master and Margarita. Oh, I haven't read that yet. I need it's, to read that. It's really, really good. Um, okay, so then what happened? Well, then we just went on this letter writing like explosion, and I—I I mean, it would as soon as soon as I would get a letter, he would get a letter, he would write, and the letter started getting longer and longer and longer, somewhere fifteen pages long. I mean, these were tomes, and and did you like? Did you? What did it start to like do to your life? I was completely obsessed completely obsessed and I would couldn't wait and my work was started to suffer <laughs> I can remember I designed a like I can't it was like a pool or something most of our work was in the Hamptons and you know up in Greenwich and places like that but I was designing a pool and I remember I just compl- and it was being built and it was completely wrong and I got <laughs> called into the off you know it was bad <laughs> was bad so I was, did you feel at that point that you were like falling for him or was it like what did it feel romantic yet or was it just like oh we're having this really deep experience it felt Whoa. like a really deep experience at first first of all he was younger than I was and secondly he's on death row so I it's not that I was so saying yeah it wasn't that my I was saying I can't fall in love with this person because of these things it just didn't really occur to me it didn't feel possible to mm-hmm. me but I knew that it, now looking back, of course it was happening all along. So what were you guys talking about? Like, was it just... Everything. Books and experiences growing up and, you know, just all of these very descriptive... He's a really, really good writer. We felt like we were creating a world just between the two of us. And it felt like that ended up feeling like that. It was like your, like your secret, like, or something. Like yeah, like it was this... There was this painting by Bosch, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's this... A woman who's enclosed in a circle. I mean, in a like not a circle, in like a bubble, and her whole world is in there. And I always felt like that was what it was like. So you had like this life, but then your world was really that you cared about was in this bubble that no one else knew about. And it was you too. Yeah. Did other people know about it? Did you tell your friends or? I didn't for a while. It was like a little secret. Yeah, (laughs) I didn't tell my family for four years. Till you had moved or? Till I had moved. So how Wait, wait, wait. Let's not get there yet. I'm still in like the, so was he describing, like, so he still had never, wasn't asking you for anything at that point. He never asked me for anything. He never asked you for anything. Not until we were married much, much later. And then of course, if he needed money, then I'd say, but he never asked me for anything. Even when things got really hard, Damien never let me know about how really bad things were. And even to this day, he won't talk about it. I mean, that's just who he is. He doesn't complain, and he doesn't, he didn't want to go on and on about how he felt. So, you know, that that cast this very, oh, it must not be as bad as I think it is, you know, which in fact it really was. Did you ever, like, see it firsthand? Like you- They won't let anyone back right. there. They used to let... Um, clergy or pastors I think they may still do that let let Mm -hmm. them go back on the row Uh, but they won't let reporters I just don't want anyone seeing it they will take tours through though and the tours were always led to Damien's cell like he was like a an animal in a cage and they would all just hover around his door and just it was awful so and he was in solitary confinement this whole time that you were writing the letters or was he not yet not yet he was in solitary confinement for just about um well 10 years of his 18 plus uh sentence so he went in 
can't remember the actual, uh, around 2002, he went into solitary, Mm -hmm. 2001. Mm -hmm. And why did they put him into solitary? Um, Arkansas had petitioned for a uh, supermax, and that's a, a supermaxes are extremely expensive. So they had petitioned to the feds for a supermax, got the money, had it built, and then weren't using it. They were just using it for what you know. And so they, the feds came along and mandated that the, that the building had to be used for what it was supposed to be used for, which was housing inmates. And um, so they decided to move death row into the supermax. And the supermaxes are just horrendous, horrendous um, buildings. Can you describe what they are? They're made. What supermaxes are, were originally designed for was the worst of the worst of the inmates, meaning prison for prison. So the, 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 say an inmate murdered a guard or something. The supermax is meant for the ultimate punishment, which is... Uh, no letters, no contact with the outside world, solitary confinement, and they're they're just horrible buildings and uh, of such suffering. Uh, and they're not meant for long term confinement. It's supposed to be for punishment where you work your way out of it. But they put death row in there, and they've done it around the country in other states where they just lodge all of death row into a supermax because it's. Easiest, They're, yeah. yeah, and these people are expendable, so let's just lock them Who away. Who are these people? Right. I know. Well, I know. So back to, so how many years were you writing the letters? So before it, things like got explicitly romantic and yeah. and you started to realize that this was... And then also what was happening to your life? Yeah. <laughs> personally. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't long. It was about six months before I realized that I had these really, really my feelings were growing for him and that I wanted to actually see him. I wanted to meet him to understand. Um, and so I went to see him to understand your own feelings, my own feelings and and what this was and how it was. And, and quite honestly, I, it felt like reason wasn't really a big part of it. I felt I've said this before, but during that time, I, I felt like it was just automatic pilot. I just kept moving to the next thing. Yeah, it was like you had it wasn't a choice. It right. was just happening. Wow. Things would come up and I would make a choice. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, I'm going to go down and see him. Yes, I'm going to whatever. And were you, was it being acknowledged that it was romantic that there were feelings on both sides like who said it first? <laughs> he said it first. <laughs> what did he what'd say? He, say? <laughs> he called me. He called the first time he called me uh, was Oh, you were speaking on the in. phone too at that point. It took a few months before before, before we spoke call. on the, yeah. What was that first phone call? Like? <laughs> oh my god! I was I lived in Brooklyn and I had a little garden in the back and uh, I was sitting outside and I heard you know it was still like pho- you know phones like, like literal phone yeah, yeah like phones <laughs> <laughs> and I heard the phone ringing and not I, torture devices <laughs> that are ruining our lives <laughs> right. <laughs> I had a. I just had this fe- a phone was, the phone was ringing and I just really I had this feeling I ran in and grabbed it and then the recording there's this recording that comes on right, you know wow, nah, 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 nah. Mm. and as soon as I said hello I was so taken aback by his accent this deep delta and it was even more it was even deeper back then it's like are you okay? <laughs> I'm okay that became our thing from then on it's like are you even to, even now, 
probably a couple times a day with, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Just checking in. Are you okay? I got one on a text on the way here. Are you okay? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, and then I think at the end of that call, he said, he said, he told me he loved me. And I was a little, you know, I was like, this is really fast. I, I was a little bit not scared by it, but it was, this was, this was getting intense and I needed to be careful because this person was, you know, having these, and I was too, you know, but I'm a little more cautious than he is. And And you were in, out in the outside world with like, I mean, with a light, with with, with more possibilities, I imagine than, I mean, obviously than he had. So you were in different circumstances, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So then what happened? What did you say back? I, I, I told him I loved him too, because I really was feeling that for him in so many ways. And, um, and I remember hanging up the phone and realizing how I, I just was stunned. First of all, from talking to him because I'd never heard his voice and just the information. I mean, it was a 15 minute call. But then I just, I I just, I was so. That's the limit? Yeah. Yeah. That's how they get you. 15 minutes and then you want to talk more. So each call has like just to, just to, just to accept the call is like a 250, you know, base fee and then minutes on top of that. It's kind of like a cab. So they'll give you 15 minutes and then you've got to pay that base fee again and then it just keeps going. But can you call like over and over again in the same time period? Oh, yeah. Oh, so you could just like keep I mean, my, my phone bills ended up being like $5,000 a month. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, wait, what? had you ever been in love before? Had I? You know, I thought I had. <laughs> but I hadn't. And being in love really has stages and phases that they go through, that it goes through, I, I believe. And so in the initial phase for us, it was just complete and absolute, like just obsessed with one another <laughs> and exploring all of that. And it's hard, it's, it's hard to believe, but I actually found the letter writing um, aspect of it so intense because you're freer to say the things that maybe you wouldn't say otherwise. And you get to know, especially with men, because he would actually, you know, I would write something and then he would answer me. And whereas now I couldn't get him to talk like that to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's very expressive. Right. But he take the time that it takes to like thoughtfully articulate your response. Right. And he had the time to do it. Right. But and he's very articulate. But we um, just had that time and the space and I'm just going to call it an opportunity to get to know each other really, really well. Were you excited or were you also really in pain and frustrated? Like, or was it all of it? All of it. Right. You hit the nail on the head. It's, mm-hmm. it was such a um, confusing, emotional, painful experience just because I had found myself in love with someone I couldn't be with mm-hmm. physically and that's one of the, I probably the most wonderful things is to love someone and be able to be with them, touch them, and you know have sex with them, and all of the things you want to do, devour them, you know, whatever mm-hmm. however you feel about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was so painful for both of us um, to not be able to act on any of that. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, 
Sometimes I think those things, when they're in your mind and you are conceiving of them, can be so powerful. Mm-hmm. And they were. That that feeling of not being able to um, act out on all of the things in your mind, then you just keep ramping it up and up, and then that was a huge component. That was a huge part of it, too, just It imagining. makes it more romantic mm-hmm. and more intense. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And less kind of humdrum. Right. And thankfully, we both had really great imaginations. <laughs> it was, it was really intoxicating, but it was also really painful. So many things mixed together. And so you hung up the phone, like you realize you're falling and you're in love. You say you're in love, and he, and so what was kind of happening in your life? Things were things were starting to suffer um, because I was carrying around the secret and. You know, I just didn't, I didn't want to tell my family. So it's not that I lied about any of it, but I started taking these trips. I did actually lie. I was taking <laughs> trips to Arkansas and I would tell my, I couldn't, I didn't feel, I couldn't tell anyone. And I told my, did you feel like ashamed of this? Not ashamed, just that it wasn't shame. It's never been shame. Just in knowing that I wouldn't be understood. Yeah. And I just wasn't up for that at right. the time. But I would have to tell my you boss. You knew that people would go, you're crazy. Right. What do you do? I tr- yeah, and I actually tried it one time with, with a friend of mine who was a lawyer, mm-hmm. the one I had talked about before. And she just said, you're out of your mind if you get involved with somebody on death row. I'll never forget it. Because it did hit hard. She said, you're just out of your mind to get involved in this situation because it's, it's... It's a dead end. Yeah. Yeah. Just pain. Yeah. Um... But mm-hmm. so you were totally alone, basically, except for him. <laughs> yeah, I told a couple of my friends and later, like a few months later, and they proved to be really good friends. They stuck it out with me till the through the whole thing. They supported me and they never, you know, right. said maybe you shouldn't be, you know, they just supported me in what I was doing. And eventually other everyone did. But it was in the beginning. I was a little reticent to be talking about it. When did the first trip? The first meeting happened. It was in August of 1996, and I flew down to Arkansas. And How I'm, many months since the first letter? So we, he wrote to me the f- in February. So like six months. Yeah, it was oh, somewhere wow. around there. And I, I was so, I mean, I, that, that part I was really nervous about. I had no idea what I was doing. I, you know, you had to get approved as a visitor. I went through all the, you know, red tape that you have to go through to go into the prison. Um, but I was just, I was scared and I, I didn't know where to, you know, stay. I remember I was staying at like a, some, like a motel on the outskirts of Little Rock, which is actually a, a pretty town, but I just didn't know. And, and I'm just, I, I could my, my stomach was in knots and I had a very early morning visit with him at eight o'clock visit. And I just remember driving there and thinking how beautiful it was. It's all these fields of just grasses and crops, which I don't, but it was really pretty. And I'm thinking, this doesn't feel right. It's so beautiful. And I'm going to this horrendous place. And I was just scared. But the minute I saw him, I just loved, I just loved him. I loved everything. I just was so struck by it. By seeing him in person, the fact that we had glass between us, I couldn't, you know, touch him. And it was so emotional and tough and 
painful because that's when you come in real contact with the suffering. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, he weighed about 116 pounds. He was so thin and he had really long hair. Uh, his he had, his nails had grown out, but I could see, you could see the suffering. That he wasn't like well physically, right? right. That yeah. he you that's when you could see mm-hmm. what he'd been through, and it was so hard for me because then it all came crashing in. What he was trying to like sort of protect you from. What he was trying that and the fact that I love this person, and now now what? What? Yeah, and and you have to save his life. Yeah. Or which, like, what are you going to do? I mean, yeah. What? Yeah. Because at that point, is, yeah, I hadn't even begun looking into the case or anything at that point. Um, but then the, all of it, it was too much to even take in. It was, and I, and I only had one visit with him and I, and I flew back that night. How many night, hours was it? Three. And I was foolish because I didn't, well, I didn't understand at the time that you shouldn't, you should schedule some time after you go into a prison to have some time just to be process, quiet yeah. and process, not get on a plane right mm-hmm. away. Cause energetically it just destroyed me. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was in bed for two days after that mm-hmm. because I just, it was too much. What were some of the things he was curious about that he was asking you about? He was curious about my work. He was curious about mm-hmm. what I did growing up, what made me into who I was. Um, what, what, what did I, what was like? your answer to that? I, it was to, those are that's where the letters would come from because a lot of you know as anyone's life is you think about you know I my constant need to find isolation I mean it was so funny he was in isolation but my entire childhood was made up of trying to get anywhere where no one could find me and even even into my adult life I would do that why was that I just love the thought of being in a place where no one knew where I was and no one could contact me. And your the cell phone thing is so funny that you brought up because cell phones just destroy that. I mean, I don't. I'm most, I know it's like there's just never a moment like yeah. where you're not like, oh, someone needs something. Oh, fuck. but do you have any idea of why you crave that so much? I don't. I really don't. I feel like I feel like I came into the earth with it, onto the earth with it. Uh, I would do things like hide in my grandparents' closets. I would. Go out and like we had a lot of like grassy fields around our house, and I would go into the field and find the highest grass, and just lie down in it because then you were, no one could see you know the grasses or I'd climb trees, anything I could do to find a place where. And later on, I would drive to motels. I say motels just because that's the place you go to where no one can, and hole up in a motel room for a weekend. Just I don't know. There was Loner. something about it. You it like felt really yourself. good. Yeah. yeah. Which actually was kind of good for preparing me for the for the life I was going to lead for the next ten years. Ten years, yeah. So it was way more than ten. Was well, it? the, the it, life in Arkansas, right? Yeah, I moved to Arkansas in 1998. So and that was two years after you met him. Yeah, and then I left in 2011. Well, you left wow. with him. Yeah. Wow. I did. Wow. So, can you give us like a brief overview of the two years before and like how things? things continued to transpire until you moved to Arkansas yeah um, leading up to you moving to Arkansas it just it just kept getting more and more and deep and intense and the love we had for each other was growing and I took a trip down to New Orleans because I had a friend who lived down there and I while I was down there I thought you know maybe I can live in New Orleans and still 
you know, see Damien. It's like Were you visiting him over the two years? Yeah. Like how often? I would try to go down once a month. That's where the line came in because I would have to make up stories. Oh, I have to go here, you know, for my job because they didn't really like me taking off a lot of time, basically, to go down there. So over the two years, what are you like? What is going? What are you thinking in terms of? I just realized I can't be here. I can't negotiate this anymore. Being here in New York, him in Arkansas in prison, and I realized that I'm going to have to move. My family didn't know anything. They didn't understand why I'm leaving this, you know, what I love, New York, my job. They thought you were moving to Arkansas, but didn't know why? They didn't know why. You just said, I'm moving to Arkansas. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't tell them anything. But they had kind of grown used to me being uh, evasive about things. So it was, but, and they didn't push it. So I moved. So you didn't move to New Orleans? I did move to, yeah. You did? I did. Oh, you started in New Orleans? Yeah, started there. Everything went wrong. And I'm trying, I'm talking to, you know, Damien on the phone and I'm crying all the time because it was, I was scared. I, you know, up and yeah, left. I didn't life have a was job. completely in chaos. It was yeah. completely in chaos. And I'm, I don't function well. And I'm a, all my life before this, I was very ordered. You go to school, you get a job, you do, you know, all these things. I hadn't even considered just quitting everything and up and so you weren't like known for like kind of impulsive decision making you were like uh, on the on a more straight and narrow kind of path it was a combination because I was known for very doing impulsive things but also at the same time having my act together and knowing Mm -hmm. what I was doing right like I would make a decision and then I would make it work Mm -hmm. so Um, having things fall apart wasn't really it wasn't you you weren't used I would take jumps and I like doing that I liked being um, spontaneous about things, but I would always make sure it worked. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, yeah. But this if there's any way of this wouldn't work for some reason. Yeah, this was complete and out of in my comfort zone completely, mm-hmm. and it and I and it was taking a toll on me. Mm-hmm. Um, just the insecurity of it, my money, you know, my money's going to run. You know, fear about money, fear about where am I going to work, how am I going to see all of it. Mm-hmm. And then I came up to see him, and I stayed in. I came. I, I I went to see him, and I met a woman at the prison, who was visiting another inmate, and she was a journalist. And we started talking, and she invited me to come stay with her over the weekend, in and Arkansas. I did in Arkansas, and that changed everything. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning, and I knew I could move to Little Rock at that point because I had two friends. So how long were you in New Orleans? <laughs> um, maybe at the most two months oh. not long mm. yeah I had to get I just knew it. New Orleans was kicking me out fast once I got to Little Rock everything fell just into place. fell into place so you got a job doing architecture stuff there. I did I, well working for the city mm-hmm. which was like a, a quarter of what I was making in New York I mean it was but very, you also have the it's cheaper to live in Arkansas yeah right it was very humbling yeah right <laughs> So you never were like, oh, I'm on this path towards just like being in this relationship that will end the way it started. Like, no. And I didn't allow anyone around me to say, he's well, gonna he's going to die or what are you going to do? If anyone said that, I would just tell them, you can't say that around me. Right. I believe that what you speak and what you think eventually will manifest. And so I'm not going to speak those things. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe 
and give us a good rating so the powers that be can keep this podcast going. Did the thought ever cross your mind of like being anxious, like um, nervous to make yourself that vulnerable to someone who was, you know, in more of a maybe desperate situation like that? What, what if when he comes out, like things change or like, you know, like because he's no longer stuck in jail, you know, like did that thought ever cross your mind of like being worried about how far you were going? I wish I would have been more worried about that because the reality of someone coming out of prison after that long, I wasn't prepared prepared for. Yeah, I was going to ask on my list. So I wish I would have had. I had a Eddie Vedder who um, lead singer of Pearl Jam for, he and I were, he was such a great, he was like a great supporter and we became really great friends. Um, Damien and Ed are very close but you know I was it's easier for me to talk on the phone with Ed he would sometimes come down and visit Damien in prison but we had a conversation once he said something about you know I re- if someone would have told you that it was going to take how you know 12 13 years of no at that point we were we were five years in I remember he God. said if someone would have told you it was going to take five years to get him out Lori would, would you've still done it and I said yeah I would have and we're talking five years. Well, it was what, you know, 12, seven years later. But I'll never forget that conversation because we felt like it was, the, the end was close and that he was getting out soon. What was the experience of living like that? It was a very isolated experience for me because I felt separated from the person I was supposed to be with. And so there was this constant yearning for him and I would do things, read books that would I felt would bring me closer. Sometimes we read books together. We watched TV shows together. So everything revolved around a connection. How often were you able to see to each him? Other we saw each other once a week um, and talked to each other every day, several times a day, and still wrote to each other every day. So everything and all those. You still wrote to each other even though you talked to each other every day? Yeah. But it's funny because our conversations. But, yeah, you would, the mail would come later, right? The mail would come, the mail would come later. Our conversations were completely different from what our letter writing life was like. And our, <laughs> when we were together physically, it was completely different than so letter writing or phone calls. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, the letter writing was always much deeper. And that's right. when we it would. It wasn't like the day to day. No, stuff. we would process things right that we had talked about or when we'd seen each other so it was more processing letter writing phone calls were the day-to-day just kind of silliness like you know what are you what's today and you know 15 minutes we had sometimes more and then the visits when we were together were more intense because we were just trying to wring every bit of intimacy and and just T- being you couldn't touch each other anything but so you it, never touched each other like you weren't we like, could hug each other when i got there but of course you're trying to do anything you can so it's this is constant watching to see if the guards are watching you and you try to like kiss each other you know it was just this crazy thing. they wouldn't let you kiss they wouldn't let us kiss no i mean but we did <laughs> it you know it's just awful because it's so why have those horrible rules you know it's mm-hmm. And so I, the cruelty, the cruelty, and then I always thought about because I would see families come with children, and think about keeping those children from their father or their mother if it was a woman, and I, it's beyond cruel. Did it ever cross your mind to doubt his innocence? Never, not once. Mm-mm. 
you could feel him. You could mm-hmm. feel his spirit. You could feel, and and I never doubted it. And did he ever like feel the need to justify or make sure you felt that way, or he tried, he knew that you believed him, and he never felt he had to justify? Himself? He never felt he had to justify it. No. Yeah, that's beautiful. That was one of, and that was one of the things that, you know, from the very beginning, it was just an. A complete like we just trusted each other when did the wedding happen in all of this so i got down there in august of two of 1998 and we got married in december of 1999 and that was also how did that happen who proposed he proposed <laughs> what did he do how did he, propose? he proposed over the phone which you know that's the, the, there could. wasn't it, he like i said damien just doesn't mince when he's ready to do something he just does he just jumps in. so he's not going to wait to go down on one knee in a visit or anything he just asked me over the phone and we'd been talking about it we had spoken about it I just wasn't ready for it when it came but when he asked me I suddenly I just knew it I just knew it was time and and it's what I wanted to do so I got a really great dress and we got my by that time I had started sitting um meditation at the Buddhist center in Little Rock and I had a teacher, and so I asked her to do the ceremony. And so what it ended up being was just a big, massive, confusing thing for the prison, which is what we wanted, so they couldn't understand the ceremony. So we got lots, we kissed a lot. We said, oh, in a Buddhist ceremony, you're supposed to bow and kiss. In in prison, you're allowed to have a wedding. You're allowed to have a wedding, but they generally only allow you 15 minutes. You get one kiss. It's just a horrible, but we ended up having like an hour, because I it's a Buddhist ceremony. They're longer. Oh, we didn't know what we made were up we, just, all this, yeah. we made it all up so that because <laughs> they didn't know anything about Buddhism. So that, right, and the last <laughs> thing they want is a lawsuit because that the Buddhist ceremony right. couldn't go through as it's. That's funny. <laughs> so, so the the ceremony we could invite six people. Who'd you invite? Um, I it, I ended up inviting three of my closest friends. One of them couldn't get in, and then Damien asked three of his closest friends. We didn't invite any family. Did your family know about it at this point? I had told my family about maybe three months before we got married. About the whole thing? About the whole thing. <laughs> and how did that go down? They had, they came to Little Rock to see me. My parents are very uh, religious people, but they're also very kind. And they've always, whatever I've done or wanted to do, they've just kind of supported me in a strange in a strange way that most people wouldn't expect like you're not necessarily talking about it but they just do it they just right they just say oh it's you know it's Lori you know whatever so it was it was like that but they were I could see in their faces they were very very scared and worried did Damien and they yeah get along when they came to visit Damien in prison they just loved him they loved him how could you not they loved him and then they would come visit him every year after that. So was the wedding like the most intimate you were able to be because they gave you more time? Yeah. And was that like crazy? It was so crazy. <laughs> and my face turned blood red, like blood red and stayed like that for oh four days. God. Were you wearing a wedding dress? <laughs> were you dressed up? I got this beautiful, it was a red, it was, on, it was red and it was very um, like Asian inspired dress and uh, had a jacket. It was so beautiful, and that's what I wore: red dress to my wedding. And wow. and with your red face, your my face was face. so <laughs> so red. And was he allowed to wear anything special, or no. he had to wear his? He had to wear his clothes. prison clothes. Yeah. So he was wearing like an orange, white, 
They white. were white. You were saying that basically around five years in, you thought he was almost going to be out because yeah. there was something going on in the case that made you think so. Yeah. Where was that around that time or? That or was, was probably. Um, before it, okay. it. No, it was after that. Oh. So it was like a year after that. So what would it be oh. like for you, these moments where you were like, you could taste uh, hope and or like a imminent like relief? Um, Quite honestly, I think it, it kept us. I think it kept us going. You know, it would just feed us hope. Right. Um, after a while, it stopped doing that, and we felt. I've I've often thought about the years around, say, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. It felt like we were in the doldrums. Like literally, there was just not any wind. There was nothing, and it was so. Because that was like a decade later. And that, and it was the bleakest time. And I think it was the hardest, except for when he got out, I think it was the hardest time our relationship suffered because I we both just started to lose even the connection between us mm-hmm. and because we just kept waiting for something to happen and we're still here and children, people are having children and their lives are, you know, I'm watching people around me whose lives are just keep going and and we're still here. We had DNA evidence come in in 2007. And then just... DNA be- evidence about the other suspect. Right. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was it. Oh, he's going to get out now. But he didn't. And right. it what just happened? kept going. The, the state just didn't respond to it. They didn't... It wasn't enough. And, you know, and they... So we had to, we just kept working and working on it. That was a tough time, just because I felt like we both needed something so desperately, anything, and we couldn't. We were too tired to help each other, and we were, you know, we we're going through the motions basically. And that's hard to do, even when you're together. You're together, let alone when you're. So it was a hard time. He had talked about being in solitary confinement and, and in prison altogether as a time where he became enlightened. What did you notice about him? Like what, what, and how did that affect you? I had, like I said, had grown up in religion, but through Damien, I started to explore spirituality, which is of course a completely different thing. And when I started sitting meditation, because he had started sitting meditation, I started to realize this whole other world. But Damien would move through things, and he would devour things, like whole subjects or, you know, books. I mean, it's just the way he is, and then he moves on. But then when he finally landed in magic, where he, his true love, then everything started just taking off, and he started teaching me techniques. And it was, this was after the 2007 um, or 2008. And that's when we both realized this is the only thing that's going to save us, that is going to get us through this time and through the rest of our lives. Can you explain, just give a little detail of like your side of it, like what that meant, magic, and like what you were doing? It's the practice of literally bringing in the energy of the, of the divine into your being. And that, to me, it's light. And for me, when mm-hmm. I say that, I see gold light. Divine energy, to me, is gold light. So if you're working with gold light, divine energy, to do anything, how can it be dark or, you know, satanic or whatever? So you would meditate? 
It's a meditation, but it's definitely a, a process. And you and you say one of the simplest pro- meditations is bringing divine light from the source down into your body to strengthen that core, your energetic core. It's not, Damien has a great way of describing it. When you're born, it's like you're a straw and you're connected to the energy of the earth and you're connected to the divine source. Mm-hmm. But as you start to grow up and as you start, things start to come at you and different things on the earth and people and whatever, ego, the straw starts to get clogged up and eventually we become disconnected from all of it, Mm -hmm. from all of the energy. So I think magic is a practice that helps you unclog that straw so that you are in direct connection with the earth and divine energy. And then from there, it's just building on that in any, you know, strengthening the energy field around you. It's just, and it's powerful. I really do believe that it accelerated his release. So let's, let's hear about like Mm -hmm. what, how that all happened. Every single day we were doing this practice where we would say, let Damien be freed from prison. um, Let it, and, and be home safe with me and let it not, you know, cause any harm to anyone else or reverse or I'm not getting exactly right, Mm -hmm. but that's, we were saying something like that. Was there a phone? You would do that together. We would do it. Not on the phone. We would literally at like 12 o'clock if we could at, or we'd pick a time and do it at the same time. And this is like maybe in 2010 or something. 2010. So what so happened? So the dark phase, like you were, this is after the dark phase. We're the darkest. I got to know Fran Walsh, um, who is Peter Jackson's partner. And I just say that because they're partners in filmmaking. And Fran and I, Fran had been working on the case with me every single day. I mean, through. I were you at working you. at this point, or were you full time on the case? Full time on the case, on and off. Sometimes I'd go back to work, and then sometimes I was working for someone. At that, I had changed jobs, and was working with someone who was very uh, supportive and let me make my own schedule, which mm-hmm. was great. So, like, you would raise you. Was was it? Were you able to raise a lot of the money for the case because of like the film and like everything that like it was? It had some like clout in like amongst like Hollywood and stuff like that. Yeah, and I didn't have to. to be quite honest I mean I did have to work hard but people wanted people to came to us I mean I would get a call I got a call a cold call from Johnny Depp one day at work I'm like what <laughs> well and Ed mm-hmm. same thing Ed Vetter contacted us and then Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson I got an email from them one morning they had sent some money to the defense fund and they said if there's anything we can do from New Zealand let me know let us know well, I had no idea. I just sent him a note. <laughs> we could use all the help we can get. I don't even know what that meant. Well, what it meant was they were going to come on board the legal team. <laughs> they actually became part of the legal team. Fran is an absolute genius. They both are. But Fran was the one working closely with me every day. She was the one who would research forensic pathologists. She was the one. We both worked together, but that woman is intense. Wow. So you became like... Like a lawyer, I did. <laughs> lawyer and an investigator, an yeah. investigator, and I can have to say that some of it was kind of exciting. And we were working with a woman investigator, and so it was kind of you know there were the women who were on the ground. Like Fran was in New Zealand, but still very involved. So the women were on the ground working, and then the men were like in the office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to take anything away. How from How many them. people were working on getting him out? Did you say um, on the team there were six lawyers. We had about five forensic pathologists. We had two investigators. We had um, 
we actually hired a PR person because that ended up being a huge part of, of overturning the case is changing the public perception of what of Damien and the case. So over the years, oh, I can't even tell you how many. Wow. So this is, is huge. But what ended up happening? Okay, so what started turning the tide is I did. I called on Eddie Vedder and Johnny Depp and Patti Smith and all every musician that Natalie Maines, Henry Rollins, anybody. I said, could y'all come to Arkansas and can we do a concert just to try to get some attention on this? Because we were getting ready to go to the Supreme Court for a very important hearing, which is asking them to overturn the case and let us have a new trial because of all this new evidence that we had. So they all said yes. And this was in August of 2010. And they all came and they had this amazing concert and it couldn't have gone any better. And everyone in Little Rock was so excited about it. And then we learned that one of the Supreme Court justice, the Supreme Court of Arkansas, one of the justices' wife was at the concert and was very moved by it. She had no problem with talking to us about it. And so we're thinking something is changing. The, the minds are starting. Mm-hmm. So we had this hearing after that concert. I just get chills thinking about it because one of the, mo- the staunchest, um, the, one of the, the Supreme Court justices that would have, absolutely ruled against us was out and this new guy was in there was a substitute and if you've ever seen west of memphis he's the one that questions the rest of the attorney the rest of the justices saying why wouldn't we allow all the evidence in why are we not letting this case you know he's the one who questions everything Mm -hmm. and that hearing we didn't overturn the case but we got an evidentiary hearing which is huge because at that hearing we would have brought all the evidence in and and we knew we knew that it would but what happened was same old tricks I'm not even saying I mean it was both sides our lawyers the state started stalling they can oh we can't do this for a year oh we can't have this hearing for two years I went berserk and we let go our lead attorney at that point because why was he stalling? He, all of our attorneys, somehow it came out that they're all from San Francisco and they all know each other. Amazing. All of them. Amazing attorneys. But what I didn't realize was the guys in all the state, like the prosecutor, they're, they're, they don't like these San Francisco attorneys. These are like mm-hmm. big wigs. Come, right. So there was never any kind of communication between them. But the other attorneys, they were all working pro bono except for Damien's. And so I don't even know. It got so complicated right. at the end why they were de- – they, they'd been delaying the whole time. And right. I had a phone call with them, and I just said, that's it. And actually, Fran and Pete were saying, Lori, and this new lawyer had come on board that was helping. His name was Steve Braga. From? Ropes and Gray in Washington, D.C. And he had worked on another case here in New York, a guy named Marty Tancliffe, and had gotten him out. And the reason I got to know, we got to know Steve is the PR guy we had bought, brought on had worked on this other case in New York with this lawyer. So I talked to Steve, unbelievable human being. We brought him on as lead attorney in January of 2011. And in August, 
of 2011, I get a call from him. What time does Damien call you in the morning? It was a Friday night. I had just been to see Damien. I said, he usually calls me around 8. He said, okay, I want to talk to you before you talk to him. So he calls me the next morning. He says, Lori, we have a potential deal set up with the state, and, and Damien could walk out of prison on Monday. Oh, my God. I can't even, like, talk about it right now. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. It's, okay. <laughs> it's been a while it. since I've thought about this, but I just immediately went in shock. I was like, and he explained it was the Alfred plea and that Damien was going to... It's okay. That Damien was going to have to accept a guilty plea, but he had fought that he could maintain his innocence in this deal, which sounded so crazy. But I wasn't even hearing it. All I could hear was Damien could walk out on Monday. And I just, I didn't even know, and I knew Damien was going to be calling me in just a few minutes. Oh, my God. (laughs) So he calls, Damien calls me, and I kind of almost didn't want to tell him because... I know him. And the minute he heard it, he was going to, that was all that he was going to, and he was going to be able to, who wouldn't? It was all he could think about. And we weren't even sure if it had gone through, if it was going to happen. But I needed to tell him because we needed to get his answer. The prosecutor said, we need all three of them to say yes, and then we'll move forward, and we can finish this up in the next three days or so. Oh, my God. Well, one of the guys said no. Jason Baldwin said no. No to accepting the guilty plea. No to accepting the the plea. And so over the next week. Such a confusing. It was so crazy because we were doing everything we could to get to Jason. I I couldn't go visit him. I had no way of So we finally found this woman that we knew. Oh, because he wasn't in the same prison? Mm -mm. And, you know, there wasn't time to write him a letter. So we had to get to him somehow. And I found this woman. Just to be clear for the audience who's listening, there like were there were three there. people in the same circumstance right. that were all associated with but this. But Damien was the only one on death row. Right. So Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miskelly were the other two, and they're both in general population. And mm-hmm. Jason had a job. I mean, he, he was actually living a life in prison. He had a job. He had, you know, he had a community. It wasn't as if he was had the same situation that Damien had. And not on death row. He wasn't on death row. So I'm not saying he was enjoying his life by any means, but but prison was a little better for him. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't feel this absolute, you know... Despair. Yeah, that he needed to... He wanted to to go through the process. Well, what he didn't understand was that process was going to get... I know for sure they would have milked it for five more years or it was just going to go on forever. And we needed to get to him to explain this to him. And secondly, that the prosecutor had actually said later, you know what, if Damien says yes, then we're doing this and we're done and he can leave. If Jason wants to stay in prison, that's fine. Because they knew the momentum was gone after that. You know, we would be leaving the whole thing would fall apart. They knew they didn't have to worry about it after that. And I hate that for Jason, but that's just the way it was. So we finally got to Jason and we finally got him to accept it. And he wasn't, he's still to this day, I don't, he still has misgivings. Because what the Alfred plea does is it lets the state off the hook so they don't have to pay any compensation. That's what it's there for. 
so that they don't have any responsibility in this. They can let the person. No, no, no prosecutor, no state is going to is going to free three, chi, you know, child murderers. They're just not going to do it. So you know that they knew they were innocent. I had this memory, of, and I, I must have had this wrong, is that what convinced him to change his mind is, is Damien's life. He, that's what, yes, that's what he said, that he couldn't bear Damien's suffering because he knew the conditions in which Damien was living. So what happened? One of the um, conditions of the plea is that we couldn't tell anyone that they were getting out. So I couldn't arrange for my cats to go live with somebody. I knew we were leaving. I couldn't tell anyone that we were leaving. I couldn't prepare. So we're moving around in this little like bubble of doing things and not being able to tell anyone. And um, I told some, of course, some of the people around, and I was allowed to tell Fran, the people who were working on the case with us, so that we could at least prepare to have a place, Fran and Pete offer us a place to live. I didn't know where we were going to live. I didn't know what. It was just all free-falling. And I remember driving over to Memphis because it's, it's, he was going to be back in the place where he had originally gone to trial, which was closer to Memphis than Little Rock. So we drove over to Memphis. I, the whole time, I'm just in shock. And I, it was like I didn't even have the wherewithal to like get my hair done you know, or anything. You know, it's like I look back on those times and you, you're thinking you're going to have like press cameras. I, at least someone got me to a place to buy me some clothes to wear. That's about the most I could pull together. And Damien is just a mess, and I wasn't able to talk to him or see him because he had been moved to a jail near the courthouse. Was he just ecstatic? or He was so... just He was, but the adrenaline, and he had just been pacing his cell. He wasn't sleeping mm-hmm. or anything. It was just constant, just pacing his cell. That's all he did. For the week. For the week. And so, I mean, I remember he had a, like a cold sore on his mouth and I'd never, I'd seen that one other time and that's when he had been moved into isolation. I just knew he was really struggling. Yeah. Um, But we all went to the court and there's still, there's this feeling, I mean, until it's done, there's this feeling that something could could fall apart and that once again, it's not going to, yeah, we'd had so many times, but this was as real as it's going to get and it all and we and and so you all went to this courthouse courthouse and by that time news had gotten out so a big crowd had shown up and we're in this little room and we're just waiting and the lawyers would text me little things and one of them actually called and let me talk to Damien for a minute because he was being held back someplace and then they and then we all went in the courtroom and it was packed and the law, the judge said the most amazing, it was a new judge, all these, the synchronicity of things. We had gotten a new judge in that last year, someone who was actually a kind, yeah. like, just person. Just person. Someone who's doing their job. A real judge. So it all worked out, and Damien and had, there was this huge press conference, and then all I remember is being in a van and going to the DMV because he had to get... Wait, were you so with we, him? Yeah. No, but oh, wait, how did wait, he wait. walk out? <laughs> I mean, wait a minute. Back up. <laughs> so he, he comes out. So he never went back to prison after He never that. went back to prison. He, the court 
happens and then he just leaves and he just leaves did he have anything of his possessions were there any possessions no he got rid of everything oh actually no he carried a small little bag out it was a daily planner (laughs) he had like written a bunch of stuff in he gave it to ed vetter so that was i think that's the only thing and in that planner were a couple of photographs that he brought out and that was it he didn't bring anything else out but I remember he came out into the courtroom and they all had to read their horrible guilty, I'm guilty. They had uh, to actually say uh. it. And everyone in the courtroom was just brokenhearted at hearing this because how hard it was for them. Mm. And But then they were actually allowed to say, but I didn't commit these. You know, it was this crazy thing. <laughs> I know. A ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and then I just remember walking out of the courtroom and getting into a van and with him with him and and then i got scared i was mm. really scared really oh my god probably scareder than i've ever been in my life from that moment for like the next 5 years uh. <laughs> wow cuz what do you do now it's like you're so used to oh my fight gosh. or flight and like yeah and you're so th- dreaming of this moment when you actually get to sleep with this person and be close to them and he felt a little alien to me suddenly and I'm sure I felt, we got like a little scared of each other. Right, because you knew each other in a certain way. Yeah, and suddenly we're confronted with this physicality that we didn't know what to do with. Wow. It was really hard. And I, like I said, I wasn't prepared for it. And I certainly wasn't prepared for, for what the trauma. he was going to go through. Yeah, the trauma was, uh, it's hard to even explain to anyone how hard, how hard it was. And it's only been in the last year that, we've been out of it or at least started to come out of it we had someone explain this just recently and it helped me so much and I hope this can help other people who are experiencing or have are with people who have experienced brain injury injuries because that's what I believe people who live in isolation have sustained so this wonderful neurologist contacted me um she saw us on Charlie Rose and she wrote and said I'd like to talk to you I've I ha- I, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, Damien and his trauma. And, and I, I just, I wrote back to her, we got together, and she explained to me that what she believes, what she knows happens is you've got someone who goes into prison at age 18 who had lived in abject poverty before that. So not a lot of experience to begin with. But you put that person on death row and their brain immediately goes into like high alert, like fight or flight. So you've got this, it's in this, the brain is in that mode from now on. For 18 years. And so it's not, there's not a lot of space left. Now Damien used his brain in the best way possible, but he's not seeing color. He's not tasting different things. He's not seeing different faces. And more importantly, he's not going through the phases we all go through in our development as far as boundaries and relationships, he's not going through those. He's going through a relationship with me, but that's far from expansive. Right. It's so concentrated. And and so you've got your brain that has formed these very distinct grooves that it's dealing with. Safety and just whatever else you're reading. Staying alive. So it's not formed all the connections that we, you know, have... So he you, he gets out of prison, and he comes to New York City where oh it's God. just bombarded. So his brain is being bombarded with information that it doesn't even know. 
what, what it is. Work? What is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? Noises, people, you know, going out to dinner. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to go to the bank. I don't know. I don't even know what this is. And then his brain would shut down. And I didn't know what was happening back then because he would look at me and he'd say, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. And then he would just sit down. And literally, once again, um, it's so hard. It's okay. Just the, I had no idea how much fear and pain he was in. And on top of that, you're putting this person on book tours and movie tours, promotional tours, traveling on pl- in planes. And I look back on it and I should have stopped it. And I just, and I didn't. Right, because it was too much. It too was too fast. much, too fast. No one could. And that's what the neurologist, at least she helped me understand what his brain was going, what he was going through. And it helped me understand at least, not that it, you know, in hindsight always, but at least I could understand it. But no one could deal with that kind of pressure coming out of a situation like that. But the problem with Damien is he doesn't show. He walks around like, very calm Mm -hmm. and except for those moments when he would say I can't do this anymore and shut down so two nervous breakdowns in the last you or him him Mm -hmm. how did that manifest Um, he didn't want to go into any kind of treatment so he would just go to bed and not get up and I and he'd be gone like look in his eyes and Mm -hmm. there's like no one there whoa for how long three weeks and we were in Salem, Massachusetts at the time, so it was really dark and hard. I'd go in and check on him, and I tried to get him to, like, a, a doctor to help at least in some, you know, he... Would he but, ever, like, you know, see a therapist, or he didn't want to do We anything? didn't until last year. Oh. So he didn't want to until all this time, but we had finally just broken down. As a couple, as human beings, we weren't even functioning anymore mm-hmm. at the beginning of 2000. 17 we were I mean it was just we couldn't what were you going through personally like you you had mentioned when when you were here last week with him that you your body I was exhausted I didn't know what I was doing most of the time and it was just this I was living with a wild animal Mm. anytime and what happens with that kind of it's almost primal because if we if anything would trigger trigger then it's scary and but this is what I'm hoping someday to be able to help mm. people with because you start to feel very isolated and the reaction from the person who's been traumatized is sometimes screaming at you never hurting me or anything but I knew mm-hmm. it wasn't personal mm-hmm. it was just everything in him that was, was reacting. He just total overwhelm. Total, total overwhelm and a total. I mean, it's totally not in his control. More than a person right. could handle. It was almost not more even than human. a person could handle. Right. It almost like disintegrated. The human disintegrated, and it was pure fear. And he mm-hmm. talked about that feeling like his body was turning to powder. Yeah, dust or dust. Yeah. yeah. And so, as a person who's living with him, yeah, the trauma affects you. You become traumatized by the trauma, but you also start to feel very isolated and ashamed. Mm-hmm. And that's been a hard thing for me to deal ashamed with. Ashamed of, of what? Ashamed because you're feeling like, I know I need to be here, but I feel like I'm being, you can't help 
associate it with being abused, even mm-hmm. though you're not, the person isn't abusing you, but mm-hmm. you feel like you're being mm-hmm. abused because you can't, you're being screamed at, even mm-hmm. though you know you're not, it's not personal. You're in a very bad situation for yourself, but even though it's not really him doing it to you, but it's like, I mean, I guess, is it that it very hard to draw the line, I think, in your, this case, in your case of what's for you? And I think point. that's also the, the shamefulness, the shame comes in for me, which I just realized recently that I was feeling that way, is that I didn't feel like I could reach out. I felt like if I reached out to help, that everyone would think we'd failed. And the expectation of, oh, the great love, like, it's all going to be... You thought the shit. getting out was all It's all going to be great after he gets out this fairy tale. Yeah, and no one knew what was going on. But I think it's so important to let people know that these situations, abuse, horrible, you know, pain inflicted on humans, be it war or, you know, mm-hmm. incest or whatever it is that you've anyone has undergone or lived through there are going to be repercussions from that and it's going to affect the fam- your family members it's going to affect everyone around you but just don't be ashamed about it get some help mm-hmm. find either a therapist if you can't afford it look around there lots of but the biggest thing for no, us alone like no that. you're not alone mm-hmm. and to know that this is a part of the process mm-hmm. it's not anything weird you're not being a, it's not an mm-hmm. abusive relationship now they can turn into abusive relationships. Mm. I, I get that. But it's all because whatever the trauma or the pain or the fear isn't being treated. Once we got into therapy, then we were able, we had an amazing therapist. I You were in couples therapy together? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was amazing. Because we were able to actually have someone finally tell us these things that you cannot be expected help guide you and hold right. your hands going through this you can't expect two people who have been through what you've been through mm-hmm. to, to not just, have trauma to not and right. be triggered left and right exactly but now we're able to see things so now i can actually mm-hmm. speak up and say you know this might not because he's not able to even he's getting better with it but now we're able to see and work together and we're i would have to say it's just like what he said I've never been happier in my life because we're moving through that. It's always going to be a part of us, but to be able to move through it and start to understand it. And like I said, just being able to tell other people, I'm so fresh out of it. Mm -hmm. It's still, you can still, I can still feel the pain of it when I start thinking about it, but I don't think it's being addressed in Mm -hmm. this way. Mm -hmm. I'm learning that through pain and a lot of, when you have a lot of trauma or a lot of pain, sometimes there's just not any room for anything else. There's not room for kindness. There's not room. You don't, you just, so now when I see someone get on the subway that is just acting horribly, I now look at them in a different way now. Mm -hmm. I think that person's in pain. Mm -hmm. If they're so angry that they, that it's spilling out on everyone else or that that person is, there's no room for anything else in them. Or you go into the post office and the clerk is really rude to you. Or, and that's the thing I'm trying to learn right now is these people are in pain. It's not, it's not personal against me if someone's rude to me or if someone's, uh, this is something that, and I'm trying to recognize mm-hmm. that more. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's a, this combination of just be kind as much as I can and not take it. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard mm-hmm. when someone is just downright horrible to you to be able to stand up against that or to ignore it or whatever you need to do in this situation or help them if you can. But I'm, I've got such a different, I was so in my head for so many years with the case and with mm. Damien and just so completely focused that I didn't think about things like this. And now I'm being given the opportunity, I think I call it, to see things in a different way mm. and just to know how much pain does drive people's actions. All of us, yeah. And all of your pain has brought you to, um, at the end of the day, to, a, to has opened your heart. It really, it has. It really has. I never thought that it could because I always felt that, you know, pain was just such a lonely, horrible place to be. But now I, it's like what you were just saying. We all share it. Would you you trade any of these experiences? As hard as it all was and, and on the other side of it, as amazing and as everything that I've gotten from it, no, I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't. I feel that I've been blessed with an absolutely amazing life, and I've gotten to learn so much, and I got this amazing man that I get to live with. So, thank you. Oh, thank my you gosh. so much. Thank you. Wow. We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, help spread the movement for radical self acceptance by sharing this episode and subscribing to our podcast. You can also watch our videos by subscribing to our YouTube channel and following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using the handle at StyleIQ. That's the letter U instead of the word U. And check out our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution, on Amazon or at a local bookstore near you. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a Photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There's no finding oneself when glossing over the truth. I'm Kyla Coleman. You might know me from Cycle 24 of America's Next Top Model. I have a brand new podcast called Not So Glamorous. On this podcast, I'll be taking off the eyeshadow, trading in my heels for some comfy shoes, and I'll tell you all about what happens before, during, and after the runway. Each week, I'll be covering a different topic in the world of modeling on Not So Glamorous. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you soon. This is Candace Lowry from Persister. Persister is a podcast where I interview badass women who've broken down barriers to really make a name for themselves. I'm talking to actors, entrepreneurs, and just women who know how to get stuff done and can help you learn how to get ahead. You can listen to Persister on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.